There are some truly difficult races in the world. Uh, I went looking out for the hardest running race I could find, and I'll tell you what, there's some pretty up there contenders for the most difficult race of all, whether it's the, uh, the 6633 Arctic Ultra, which is a 500-kilometre-long race run basically around the edge of the Arctic Circle, uh, or, or the race they call self-transcendence, which is a 5,000-kilometre-long running race, which you have to run in under 52 days. So you've got to run nearly 100 kilometres a day for 52 days straight to be able to complete this racing time. That's not even the best bit. The best bit is that that particular race is run around one city block. So you have to do 5,649 laps of the one block Right, same playground, same school, same playing fields over and over and over and over and over again. But even that one I don't think is the most gruelling, the hardest, if we go simply by completion rates. The hardest has got to be the Barclay Marathon. Now I love the Barclay Marathon mostly just because of the story, it's quirky. Right In in the late 80s, uh, this guy Gary Cantrell heard about the escape of James Earl Ray, who was the man who killed Martin Luther King. Now, James Earl Ray escaped from prison and managed to run eight miles in 60 hours. They, They caught him 55 hours later and he'd only gotten eight miles away. And this guy, Gary, thought to himself, you know what, I reckon in that time frame I could have gotten away by about 100 miles. And so he began the Barclay Marathon. Now, as far as numbers go, this is small. It's only 160 kilometres, although, mind you, that's like running from Ingleburn to just past Nowra, so it's a fair way in and of itself. But it's very quirky. Only 40 people are allowed to compete every year. And in order to participate, you have to write, Gary, an essay entitled Why I Should Be Allowed to Run the Barclay. You have to pay the fee, which is $1.60, And you have to send, Gary, whatever it is that he determines to be the fee for entry that year. So, for example, one year he needed some more flannelette shirts. So he said, you've got to pay me $1.60 and a flannelette shirt. So he got 40 flannelette shirts. It's a bit of a laugh. Applicants who are accepted receive a letter of condolence by way of their acceptance. The thing is, the race, what makes it so gruelling, what makes it so hard is the terrain. Right now, 160 kilometres isn't all that much compared to some of these other ones. But over the course of the race, the five laps that they have to do of this course, participants will climb nearly 16,000 metres. They will ascend 16 kilometres. You go up and down and up and down and up and down. There's, there's no aids, you know, technology, right? You get a map and a compass and basically you're moving for 60 straight hours to try and doing it. Again, to give you a sense of the scale, Mount Everest is just, is just under 9,000 metres high. So you have to climb Mount Everest twice in the space of these 60 hours of running. Out of the 1,100 or so people who've entered into this race, only 15 have ever completed it. The Barclay Marathon is gruelling. It is hard. It really requires a degree of discipline and preparation that I don't think many of us would even consider it. It's ludicrous, the thought of participating in something like that for most of us, right? To spend a year of our life doing nothing other than preparing for this one race. And yet, that's the picture 
of the Christian life in our chapter today. Chapter 12 in Hebrews and verse 1, Therefore, because of this great cloud of witnesses that we spoke about last week, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. Now, in some ways, I approach this chapter with a little bit of fear, a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of anxiety. You see, the thought of committing myself to something like one of these ultra marathons, one of these incredible races, is so daunting as to almost be unachievable. I just can't fathom giving myself to something like this. And so this chapter is daunting because what is it that we're going to make of this race, which is no easier than those? Now, as we work through the chapter, I want to draw out three different ideas. Firstly is our motivation. Why is it that we're going to run this race, the race of the Christian life? Secondly, how? How is it that we're going to run? And then thirdly, what are the warnings that we see here against failure? Firstly, let's talk about our hearts. Let's talk about our motivation. Let's talk about that which is going to keep us going. The prize that lies at the end of this race. Now, of course, different races, different competitions, different events all have different kinds of prizes. We've just finished the Olympics, Paralympics running as we speak. I wonder if you are aware of what the prize is for the winner in in an Olympic event. I mean, there's the gold medal that they receive. Have you ever stopped to consider what else do they get? Is Is that it, a gold medal? Now, as it turns out, that is it from the Olympic Committee. They give you the medal and well done you. But each country usually has some sort of incentive for their athletes. So Australia, for example, uh, has an Olympics incentive uh, scheme where if you win a gold medal, you get 20 grand. There you go, $20,000. That's how much an Olympic medal is worth. Uh, If you win multiple gold, you still only get the incentive once. You only get 20 grand for your time and effort. Different countries have really different prizes. South Korea, for example, if you win a gold medal, you get an exemption from compulsory military service. Yay! Um, That one's all right. I was more amused by Germany and Belarus. Uh, In Belarus, if you win a gold medal, you are given a lifetime supply of unlimited sausages. And in Germany, you are given a lifetime supply of beer. There you go. So something about those countries. What's the prize for running the Christian race, running life with Jesus. Well, we know the prize because it's a race that Jesus has already run. He's already won. He's got gold. We can see what it is that he received and know what awaits us. Have a look. We'll just pick out a few verses along the way. Verse 2, keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's the prize? The great joy that awaits at the end. The joy that's captured in those final chapters in Revelation of life lived as it was meant to be, in the presence of God, in the fullness of God, in the joy that comes from death and sin being removed from our world. For the prize of sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling Come down to verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful later on. However, here's the prize, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. What is the prize that awaits at the end? It's to be God-like in character, 
in our lives, in our behaviour, in our thoughts, in ourselves, to be righteous. To not only be considered righteous because of the Lord Jesus, but to be truly righteous, to be transformed into Christ's likeness. Or down verse 14, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. The prize is to see the Lord, to be with God, to live with him, to enjoy him. As we read in verse 28, the prize is a kingdom that cannot be shaken, by which we can serve our God with reverence and awe. What a marvellous prize. The the thing that we want most, right? The thing that we yearn for, yeah? What our hearts desire to be with God, to be like God, to be restored back into the fullness of relationship with, that's what we want, right? That is the motivation to run. I wonder though how much we truly value that. Does this chapter cause us to take our measure of how much we value God? Is that an exciting prize to you? The joy that awaits in God's presence, the fruit of righteousness that we receive, to see God and be with him, to live in his kingdom forever. Does that prize excite you? Do you find yourself yearning for it? And I tell you, we have to start here because if we are motivated rightly, then nothing's going to happen. You're not going to run. You're not going to get out of bed and train. You're not going to do this. You're not going to give the sacrifice of yourself required to make it through this race. I tell you, most of us seem to find the energy to do the things that we want to do. It doesn't matter how tired or busy or run down we are. If it's a thing that we're really excited by, oh, we're going to do it. The, the, the event, the, the toy, the whatever it is, if we love that thing, if we yearn for it, we are going to give ourselves to it. Is Jesus something that we love? Do we love God enough to run this race? It made me think of that hymn, Fix Your Eyes Upon Jesus or Look Up to Jesus. And that brilliant line in there, right? Fix Your Eyes Upon Jesus says, and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Have we fixed our eyes upon Jesus such that our hearts yearn for him and all else fades away as we look to Jesus? Why are we going to run? Well, the motivation has to come out of seeing what Jesus received, the desire to be with God in the fullness of righteousness, to live with him, to enjoy the kingdom that he has created for us, to rejoice in who he is and what he has done for us. And again, if our hearts aren't there, the rest, well, there's no real point. But if our hearts are, if that's what we want, we want to run this race, well, how are we going to do it? Now, the writer points out three things, three parts to running this race. The first one we already saw in verse 1. Right, Because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, what do we do? Lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us to run with endurance the race. Lay aside what hinders and the sin, excuse me, and the sin that entangles. 
Now, I think we often focus on the second of those, the, the sin that entangles, the sin that ensnares. Joe was speaking about it briefly last week. Right? It's easy in some ways to point out that which is ungodly because it's ungodly. Right? That's sinful, don't do it. Right? And if you're doing it, if you're pursuing this sin, it's going to entangle you and snare you, pull you down, slow you down. Running through blackberries is a very different experience than running over a nice grassy meadow. You're not going to get very far, very fast. But I wonder about that first half, that, that which every hindrance, that which otherwise is going to weigh us down. I take it that this could well be good things. Not just sin that we have to put aside, but good things that will stop us running. Good things that will hinder us. Now these are harder to spot because they're good things. You can't simply say, well, that's sinful, don't do it. That's a good thing, don't do it. Well, not really. I mean, many good things are good. In fact, they help us to run. We have to become a little bit more ruthless in assessing that which is in our life. Does this good thing though it is, help me to run? Or is it something I need to discard for the sake of running well? Right, The tracksuit pants are really useful. They keep you warm until you're at the start line. But once you're at the start line, you don't see any of the guys running the 100 metres in a full tracksuit. No, they take it off and they wear very little and what they do wear is extremely aerodynamic for the sake of running fast. How are we going to run? makes me think that we'd do well to have a greater mindset of discipleship, not running alone, running with others alongside us who can help to point out the hindrances, who can help us see and understand that which gets in the way. We've got to run by throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that ensnares. We've got to run with perseverance is the second way to run. We've got to endure. This is an endurance race. It's all the way through our chapter, right? Again, verse 2. Run with endurance. Or verse 3, consider him, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus. How did he run? He endured hostility from sinners against himself. In fact, such hostility, we have to consider it that we won't grow weary and give up. Down to verse 7, endure suffering as discipline. Verse 12, therefore strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Make straight paths for your feet. The Christian life, is a hard race. I tell you what, when you set out to run 5,000 kilometres in 52 days, you expect a degree of suffering. Hearing the testimonies of some of the guys and girls who've run these races is astonishing, right? There comes a point in time where the body just shuts down and it's purely a battle of the mind. Will I take another step? 100 kilometres a day. They start at 6am and they go all the way through till 11pm, midnight. Go to bed, get up again the next day and go again. Endurance is required. I wonder, do you expect the Christian life to be hard? Do you expect that living for Jesus in this life is going to be like one of those races? After all, we're told to consider Jesus who endured such Suffering. I mean, he's, he's the founder of the race. He's the one who set the course. He's the one who shows us where we've got to run. And he had to endure the cross. But I'll tell you what, there's something very powerful in this passage for us, something that ought to give us even greater strength and courage. Have a look at verse 7. Endure suffering, not just because, but endure suffering as 
discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? We as Christians have the great comfort of knowing that the hard things we are facing, that which requires endurance, is still in our God's hand. Comes from our Father as discipline. It's not random, it's not haphazard, it's not punishment. It's born out of God's desire to strengthen us, to grow us. Discipline is that idea of helping a plant grow up tall and straight. On its own, it wants to go crooked and sideways. You put a rod and you tie it to the rod for the sake of the plant growing. The hardships of the Christian life are part of the race. They're not something that happens outside of God's control or that comes our way to somehow out of the blue and we're not expecting it. No, we are expecting it because God loves us, because God is our Father, because we are His children. The Father who hates His children doesn't discipline them. He doesn't care about them. The Father who loves His children wants to see them grow. It's not pleasant. All right, come and have a look at verse 11. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. That's by its nature, all discipline is painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I mean, you want to talk about running races, right? The the dedication to training required to run one of these races requires early starts and pain and sweat. It requires discomfort. It requires endurance through it all. And you know what? God's discipline is going to come different to each one of us. Like children, God will discipline us in ways that we need. My three children and two more on the way, and I tell you what, they all react so incredibly different to different kinds of discipline. Some of them need to have privileges taken away from them. Some of them need to have consequences dealt onto them. Some of them, just the fact of someone being cross with them is enough. As Christians, God's going to discipline us differently, each one, but we have the comfort of knowing that He knows us so well that the discipline we receive is the discipline we need. All sorts of different Christian hardships all come from the hand of God to help us run. So run with endurance. Run with perseverance. We have to throw off everything that hinders. We have to run with endurance. The third way that we have to run is in verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, we spent three weeks over the last school holidays basically on that one verse. How is it that we are going to pursue the holiness of our God to become like God? So you can go back and find those sermons are on YouTube or on our website. You can find just the audio if you're the podcast kind of person. But here's the cheat sheet version of those three weeks. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You want to become holy like God is holy. What you need to do is look to Jesus. You want to know how to be like God? Become like Jesus was. There's the cheat sheet version of it. How are we going to run? By keeping our eyes firmly on Him. You know, the Barclay Marathon truly is a difficult race. As I said, since the 1980s, when the race first started through to today, out of 1,100 or so competitors, only 15 have managed to complete the course in under 60 hours. Only one person has done it twice and only one other person has done it three times. And that's it. Thousands have tried. Few have succeeded. 
in, in some of them, heartbreakingly, actually, in 2017, this guy called Gary Robbins finished the race six seconds outside of the six hours. Can you imagine after doing all of that to be just six seconds short? Now, our writer doesn't just want to tell us to run. He doesn't just want to give us the motivation to run. He doesn't want to tell us the how to run. He also wants us to heed the warnings about not running. He doesn't want us to miss out. Have a look at verse 15. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. Now, these warnings are warnings that we need to take to heart individually. They're warnings for each one of us personally. But they're also warnings for us corporately, together as the body. We, this isn't a solo race. It's not even a relay, although there's relay aspects to it. This is, a, this is a group race. This is a team race. This is like the Patagonian marathon where teams of four compete against each other. All four have to make it across the line. These are warnings that we as a body would watch out for each other. Here's the first one. The first one is that there's no root of bitterness that springs up causing trouble and defiling many, we read in verse 15. Be careful that no root of bitterness grows. Now, again, this is personal, right? Bitterness is utterly destructive. In some ways, it's almost the opposite of forgiveness. It's the person who cannot forgive, who cannot let go, who cannot accept the wrong and move on. It's the person who holds on to it. It's destructive to them, but it's also destructive to others. It's devastating. See, here is the bitter person. What do they achieve? They cause trouble and defile many. It's not just themselves who goes down, but they pull everyone else down they can with them. Now, there's a couple of Bible passages that come to mind talking about this idea of the root of bitterness. It's a reference back to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29 from verse 18. As God was talking to Israel, God was talking to his people, telling them how to live as his people, setting out for them the rules and regulations for corporate life and individual life. And it says this in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18, be sure that there is no man, woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of these nations, be sure there is no root among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking, oh, I'll have peace, even though I follow my own stubborn heart. This will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. You see, what's this root of bitterness? It's the individual in the midst of God's people who's decided, I'm just going to go my own way. I'll still be okay with God. God won't mind. God's people won't mind. But I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to take a new path, if you like, in this race that we're running. I'm going to run that way instead of this way. Actually, what that happens is a whole bunch of other people follow too to their destruction. Can I just warn you for a moment, if you ever feel like you've personally, you've discovered a new path, you've discovered the right way that for so long was hidden and now you're boldly going that way, just be careful. Be very careful the way that you're running. The warning here is of that individual who in the end will turn their backs on God. There's another passage though that comes to mind. 
We stumbled upon this in staff meeting this week. We're reading through the second half of Genesis in preparation for preaching at next term. And we stumbled across this verse, which is so apt. It's Genesis 26 and verse 34. When Esau was 40 years old, that's going to become relevant in our passage in a moment. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as his wives Judith, daughter of Beri the Hethite, and Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite, they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Now look, maybe it's coincidence that in Hebrews 12, as the writer is talking about Esau, he just so happens to talk about the root of bitterness. Eh, maybe not. In fact, maybe there's something to that, that Esau went and married foreigners and brought idolaters into their midst who made their life bitter. How is it that we're going to run? We've got to run together, not allowing among us the kind of sin which will pollute and contaminate the entire body and defile many. In fact, I think this second warning explains this a little bit further. It's an illustration for us. Back in Hebrews 12 and verse 16, make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. You know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. And we're going to come to Jacob and Esau next term as we talk about it, but here's a, a fascinating example of Esau as a sexually immoral and irreligious or irrele- irrelevant, irreverent person. I wonder if you know the story of Jacob and Esau. Again, we'll come to it. I'm not going to recount it in great detail. But Esau most definitely was an irreverent man. He considered the promises of God. He considered God's inheritance of so little value that he was prepared to swap it for a bowl of stew, for crying out loud, for the gratification of his immediate needs. He gave up everything. Now, it's strange that Esau is considered the example of the sexually immoral here as well. I wonder if it isn't that chapter from Genesis 26, the man who would go and bring into family life idols, who would bring into their religious life those who didn't worship the true and living God. But did you notice the problem that Esau had in our passage here? He didn't find opportunity for repentance The day came when he was sorry, when he really wanted once again to receive the blessings, when he wanted to be part of it, but wanting isn't the same as repenting. And no longer he had opportunity to repent. I think here's the warning. Don't treat the things of God as of such little value so as to throw them away, thinking, oh, one day, one day I'll get back to it. One day I'll come back to Jesus. Look, for right now, I'll follow this path over here for a little while. It's just for a little while. I'm I'm going to compromise my integrity now. I'll pursue that dream right now. Maybe I'll just go and marry her or date him. And and, and a little bit further down the track, at some point, there'll come a time where I'll I'll get back to this this God stuff. When the kids come, then then we'll go and they'll go to Sunday school. and, And one day, one day, Maybe the opportunity for repentance might never come again. You might never find yourself in fellowship with Christians in a way that you hear the gospel that brings you back from your sin. If you're not single-minded for Jesus now, 
What makes you think you will be then? No, here's the third warning, and that is do not reject the voice from heaven. Don't reject what God has to say. Come and have a look down at verse 25. See to it that you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned him on earth, even less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. Israel came to Mount Sinai. They trembled as the mountain shook as God spoke and warned them. And yet they did not listen to God and were destroyed in the wilderness because of it. If that happened to them, we have the voice from heaven. We didn't just come to a mountain. We've come to the very throne room of God himself as Jesus comes and brings us God's word. If we ignore that warning, well, Jesus will return and everything will be shaken once more. The earth and the heavens and everything in them will be destroyed except, except that which cannot be shaken, the kingdom that God gives to his own, the kingdom that God gives to those who run with endurance, the prize that we wait to receive. So run. (laughs) Run, Forrest, run. In some ways, I, I preach this sermon with a little bit of trepidation, a little bit of fear. You see, the thought of committing myself to one of these ultra marathons, to one of these incredibly difficult races, is really a very scary one. It's one that's almost seemed out of my reach. Am I able to summon that degree of single-minded focus to go and do the Barclay Marathon? I mean, my wife wouldn't let me, so it's okay. But to commit to the Christian race in that way, to to put blinkers on, to be like a horse that's got the blinkers on, right? Am I even able to throw aside the good things in life that hinder me from running for Jesus? Am I able to fight against the sin that would weigh me down, to seek the discipline of the Lord, knowing that He is transforming me into righteousness, to pursue peace with everyone and holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Is this a commitment that you are able to make? that you will run the race set before you with your eyes firmly on Jesus, distracted by nothing, hindered by nothing. Because we want that prize. We want the joy that waits at the end. We want the kingdom that will not be shaken. We want to sit with the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God Almighty, enjoying Him forevermore. Are you ready? Get set. Go. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has run the race before us and so he shows us both how to run and the prize at the end. Father, that he takes us with him. This is a race where we do not run alone, but it is a race that Jesus has pioneered. Heavenly Father, fill our hearts with longing for the prize. Fill our minds with the ability to run well. Make us heed the warnings, Father.
that we would be caring for and loving one another enough to want to see each other run well. And Father, we ask that the Lord Jesus Christ would return soon to shake this world that your kingdom might come. Amen.